Bibles, then open with me this morning to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, I think centered on probably crazy. All right, Luke chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 39 this morning, and we're going to look in more detail about what the children just brought to us, which was the story of Christmas, of how God sent his son into this world to come uh, to save sinners like you and I so that we can have the gift of eternal life through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Luke chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 39. And this morning, we're going to see the magnificence. Am I not old? Well, why don't you come and turn me on? There we go, Dave. Now I'm on. All right. I'm sorry. I'm rattled. That was great. Uh, the children did a fantastic job. For those watching online, I apologize. I sat too close to the phone, so you probably didn't hear the children. You heard me singing. Oops. Sorry. So you go back and watch that later and laugh if you want to. But, uh, so again, Luke chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 39 this morning as we continue through the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. And we see the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so let's just pick up in verse 39 of chapter 1. We'll read through verse 56. We'll pray and then we'll jump back into the text this morning. It says, In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. In verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. Lord, we are just so thankful for the opportunity that we have had this morning to gather together to worship you, Lord. We're so thankful for the children and the program that they just put on, the musical that they just brought to us, Lord. What a, what a great time that was, worshiping you through song and having our children lead us in worship. And so, Lord, we just pray now that you would be glorified and honored through the preaching of your word, that you would take this word, you would help us to see it afresh and anew, and, Lord, that we would make much of Jesus today that we would exalt and magnify our Lord and our Savior. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Amen. Well, in the text this morning, we're going to see three reasons as to why we are to magnify the Lord this morning. Number one, we're to magnify the Lord because of his mercy. We're to magnify the Lord because of his mercy. Now, let me kind of remind you of where we are at in the Gospel of Luke. If you'll remember, two weeks ago, we looked at God's announcement to Zechariah and Elizabeth that they were going to have a baby, even though Elizabeth had been barren her entire life, and Zechariah and Elizabeth were well past the age of childbearing, they were going to have a child, and this child was going to be great because this child was going to prepare the way for the Lord. And so we saw the great announcement concerning the birth of John the Baptist. Then we see that the angel Gabriel then goes to visit Mary. And tells Mary that she too is going to have a child. Her child, however, is going to be greater than John the Baptist. Because she is going to have the very Son of God, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so Mary, we find in this text, from there, then goes to visit Elizabeth, her relative, probably wanting confirmation that she, in fact, was pregnant so that they could rejoice and celebrate together. Notice the awesome, interesting things in verses 39 and following that we see that takes place. As soon as Mary enters the house of Elizabeth and she greets Elizabeth, the baby inside Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, leaps with joy before his Lord and his Savior. As soon as Elizabeth feels her baby react to the presence of the coming Messiah, the scriptures tell us that she's been filled with the Holy Spirit and she begins to proclaim to Mary this great announcement. Notice what she says. In verse 42, she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And listen, notice her humility in verse 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Notice a couple of things about Elizabeth there. One, notice her humility. She knew that she did not deserve to be in the presence of her unborn Lord. That's incredible, amen? She knew that she had no right to be or to stand in the presence of God. And she knew that God was in Mary's belly awaiting to be born. And so she's humbled by the presence of her Lord, but also notice her faith in her unborn Lord. She professes that it is her Lord that she is standing in the presence of. And so even though the Christ child had yet to be born... Mary, excuse me, Elizabeth had already placed her faith in the coming Messiah. She knew because of God's work in her own life that God was doing what God had promised he would do. Right. The Messiah was indeed on the way. And the very promised one of God, the Son of God, was in her living room. And she is filled with amazement. She continues on in verse 44 and she says, Behold... When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. John the Baptist is already declaring Jesus Christ to the world, right? Yeah. Notice that. He's prepared the way, even in the announcement, even in the conception. John the Baptist, we saw last week and the week before, that he was preparing the way for Jesus. And at the very first chance he gets... To be in the presence of the Lord. He again is preparing the way of Jesus. He's declaring to his own mother that the Messiah is in the room. That's awesome. Amen. 
That's absolutely incredible. John is declaring the presence of Jesus to his own mother. She continues in verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so Elizabeth, filled with the Spirit, gives praise to her God. She gives praise to Mary for her willingness to follow the Lord's will for her life. And it is in that context that Mary then explodes in this famous song of praise that we see starting in verse 46. This song has been titled Mary's Song. It's also known as the Magnificent because in the Latin translation, the word magnificent is the first word that appears. What this word literally means in the Greek when notice Mary says in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. That word magnify, think of it like a magnifying glass. In the Greek, it literally means to make something large, to make it bigger. And so what Mary is doing in this text is she is exalting, she's magnifying, she's making Jesus bigger. She's giving us a bigger glimpse of who he is so that we will see that Jesus deserves to be magnified. He deserves to be exalted. Therefore, what we want to do this morning is we want to make Jesus large. We want to make much of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning. And in the text, we're going to see these three ways or reasons that we are to make much or to magnify the Lord. First of all, we see that we are to magnify the Lord because of his mercy. Look with me again in verse 47 and 48. It says, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That phrase, looked on, in the Greek, it's translated as looked on. It means to be looked upon with mercy and favor. In other words, it's not the looking upon that sometimes happens from a parent to a child when a child is in trouble. Right? You've been there, right? You, you've gotten that look before from your mom or your dad, right? And that look is not a look of favor and mercy. Right. That look is a look of judgment is about to come, right? That's this right. is not that look, right? This is the other look. This is the look that when you look upon your child, there is a look of mercy and favor. There's a look of love. There is a look that provides and supports grace and mercy. And that's the look upon that Mary talks about here. She says that I, the, her, the lowly servant, have been looked upon by God with grace and with mercy and with favor. Mary here claims to be of lowly estate, probably because in society she was considered to be low. She was, she was a, a poor and unimportant person. She was a woman. So therefore, in this society, biblical society, she had no real social standing or social class. And what Mary is amazed by is that of all people, she was chosen to be the mother of God's own son. Listen, I, I don't know what you think of yourself. I don't know how high or how low your self-esteem might be. But let me just encourage you this morning. God looks favorably upon the humble. That's right. All right God looks favorably upon the lowly. It doesn't matter how low we are. God likes using the low to bring himself glory and honor. Amen? That's right. And so if you're of lowly estate this morning, be excited because you're right where God can use you. Amen? Yeah. 
And that's exactly what Mary begins to acknowledge. And so she's magnifying the Lord because he's looked upon her with grace and with mercy. But also notice in verse 46, Mary understands the significance of who Jesus is. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now Mary is interesting. All throughout this account, she is pictured as pondering the things that she's being revealed. Right, So when she's told that she's going to be with child of the Holy Spirit, she ponders those things. When Jesus is born and the rejoicing begins, she sits back and she ponders all of these things. She spends a lot of time thinking and pondering. But notice that Mary is not confused. Mary has put the pieces of the puzzle together and she knows that the one to be born is the Messiah. And it is not just the Savior of the world. It is her personal Savior. Amen. She says that I've been looked upon favorably by God, my Savior. And so she acknowledges and knows that the one to be, that the one to be born is her Savior. Mary understood the significance of what was going on. But notice, Mary has good theology as well. Look at what she says in verse 48. He's looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She acknowledges and understands that she's going to be blessed not because she does something awesome here, but notice what she says in verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things right. for me, and holy is his name. Yeah. You see, Mary understands that the way in which we bring glory and honor to the Lord is not by focusing on what we've done, but by focusing on what God has done through us. Yeah. Amen? She acknowledges that I'm going to be blessed from generation upon generation, still to this day, Mary is held in high esteem. But some make the mistake of holding Mary in high esteem because of something she's done, when in reality, she's the one that acknowledges it is he who is mighty that has done great things for him. Right? It's not her holiness, it's his holiness, it's his mighty works that have done something fantastic, not only for Mary, but for all mankind. Amen? And notice she acknowledges that in verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now I want you to notice what it says in verse 50. The mercy of God, his favor as he looks upon us. It is not for everyone. It is specifically reserved for those who fear him. What does it mean to fear God? Well, it doesn't mean to necessarily just tremble before his presence, although he deserves that kind of fear as well. Amen? But it means that we fear that he is God, and as God, we are willing to submit to him and obey him. If he is God, it ought to affect the way we live and what we do in his presence. Right? Amen? Listen, the other day, I walked into the schoolroom, and, and Noah was there in the schoolroom, and as soon as I walked into the room, he immediately went from being distracted to focusing on school, right? And what happened? Right? The presence of his father entering the room immediately got his attention focused back on school. He probably thought it was his mom. He knows I don't really care that much. But he probably thought it was, was, was mama, right? But, but just that, that knowledge of boom. The presence is here immediately changes our attention. It changes our focus. It changes what we do. 
Well, the same way understand, if we understand that we are always before the presence of God, that He is actually God, that it will change how we live, it will change what we do, amen? And that's exactly what Mary understands. Listen, His mercy endures. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation, even up to now. But His mercy is only for those who submit to Him as Lord, who submit to Him as God and as Savior of their lives. And so we want to be reminded today of God's mercy, but we also want to be reminded that His mercy is for those who are willing to place their faith in Him. And so Mary acknowledges that she is unworthy of God's mercy, but through her Son, Jesus Christ, mercy has now been offered to all mankind. And I want to remind you this morning that we are unworthy of God's mercy. Who are we to be called the children of God? Who are we that Christ would die for us? Who are we that God would want a relationship with me and a relationship with you? But that is exactly what God has provided through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we want to make much of Jesus. Amen? We want to exalt the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because of His mercy. But then secondly, we're to magnify the Lord because of His justice. Now, we, we love magnifying and making much of God's mercy, right? We love talking about the mercy of God and the love of God. We don't like so much talking about the justice of God, right? This is not our favorite stuff. But what we must acknowledge is that God is completely and perfectly just. Notice what we see in verses 51, 52, and 53, God's arm is said to be stretched out against the proud, the mighty, and the rich. These are those who do not see a need for God in their lives. These are those who feel like they've got everything under control. They don't need God in their business, and therefore they reject God, and God then stretches out His arm in opposition to them. Notice what we see in verse 51. It says that he has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. In other words, he has confused the proud, as the New King James Version translates it, in their own imagination. You see, the proud are those who think that they have already arrived. They are those who think they have everything that it takes to stand before God. A great illustration of this from Scripture is the Pharisees. The Pharisees of Jesus' day, they thought they were righteous. They were religious, and so they thought they had everything under control. They had no need of Jesus. They had no need of something else. They were good in and of themselves. What? They were proud. Yeah. They were proud. They thought they had lived a good life. They thought they had done enough good that they could stand before God, and they would equal up to His perfect standards. Let me remind you, they were very, very, very wrong. Amen? There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none of us who on our own accord and own account can stand before God. None of us can say, hey, look at me, I'm awesome. Right? Because none of us are awesome. All of us have fallen well, well short of God's glory. 
And even the person that we sometimes fool others into thinking we are is not who we really are on the inside. And you know what you struggle with. You know the thoughts of your heart and the thoughts of your mind. You are not worthy to stand before a holy God. And neither am I. Amen? Amen. And so Mary acknowledged that God's arm is stretched out against the proud. But God will give grace to the humble. Then notice what we see in verse 52. It says, He's brought down the mighty from their thrones, but He has exalted those of a humble estate. In verse 52, we see that the Lord will put down the mighty, but He will exalt the lowly. Those who are mighty are those who feel like they have got power. Wherever they're at in life, they develop some sort of authority and some sort of power. It's given them a sense of self-confidence, and they therefore like that they don't need anyone. They have everything under control. Some of them get to be so proud and so arrogant that they are willing to stand up against the God of Israel and declare that they are more powerful than he. We see examples of this all throughout the Old Testament. We see this with Pharaoh in Egypt where he refuses to let God's people go and he declares through his actions, I am stronger than God. God proves him very, very wrong. Amen? Amen. We see this throughout the book of Daniel, right? Nebuchadnezzar declares, don't worship God, worship me, right? And what happens? God eventually takes his mind away, sends him out into the field to eat grass like a wild animal for seven years, Right? No, no matter how powerful we think we are, no matter how much we think we have things under control, we do not have it under control. If anything, the last two years should have demonstrated to all mankind that we don't have it under control. Right? We have no clue what's going to happen. Even, even not last night, but the night before, through Tennessee and through Kentucky, proved that people with great power have no control over things, right? And so we pray for them. Our heart breaks for them. But it's another evidence that our power does not stand up to the power of God. Yeah. And so what we want to acknowledge is that He is the one that is in control. Therefore, we don't want to be those that are mighty. We want to be those that are lowly. God didn't come and speak to the mighty. He spoke to the lowly Mary. Right? The one who was already humble. The one who was already in a place that she could be used by God. In verse 54, we see that it continues not only... Excuse me, verse 53, it says that he filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. The rich are those who trust not in God, but trust in their stuff. Right? They trust in all the things that they have accumulated. Their money, their possessions, their stuff. And, and I want to be honest with you. I know that you probably don't consider yourself rich. But in comparison to the rest of the world, as Americans, we are rich. We have more stuff than most any other country in the world. And you yourself possess more than most anybody else in the world. And so as an American, it is real, real easy, especially at Christmas... To get wrapped up in what we have. To take comfort in what we possess. To make a list of things that we want more of. Right? So that we can accumulate more stuff. 
Because more stuff makes us feel better. More stuff makes us secure. The bigger our bank account is, the more secure we get. The smaller it gets, the more nervous we get. Why? Because too often we put our faith and our trust in our stuff instead of in our God. And what we see is that God resists the rich. He resists those who accumulate so much, not that they hate God, but that they trust their riches instead of their God. That's right. Now listen, this doesn't mean you can't be rich and love God and serve God faithfully. There are those people out there who do exist, right? And I know what you're thinking. God, let me be one of those, right? But the reality is you're probably not capable of that or God may have blessed you that way already. I got a sneaking suspicion. God's giving me what I've got because I can't handle it anymore. That's right. Right? If I had had any more than I currently have, I would be tempted, like David prays, to stop trusting in God because I have too much food. Mm. And so like David, we pray, God, give me what I need so that I'm not in want and therefore sin against you. But don't give me more because if you give me too much, I'll stop trusting you and I'll start depending upon you. That's my heart. Right? None righteous, no, not one, including me. Right? And so what... We see in verse 53, what we see in verse 52 and verse 51 is that God has stretched out. He's resisting those who reject him. He's resisting those who think that they have everything under control. Therefore, they do not need God. So he resists the religious. He resists the powerful and he resists the rich. All those who think that they have something to offer to God. Instead of the lowly and the humble who know that they bring nothing to the table, what they need, what we need, is all of God's grace. As a matter of fact, the author of Hebrews says it very, very sternly in Hebrews 10 verses 29 through 31, speaking to those who reject Jesus, who reject God's offer of salvation. He says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot? The Son of God has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay again. The Lord will judge his people. He says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's right. Here the author of Hebrews, he paints this picture. He says, how bad do you think it's going to be for those who looked at God's son Jesus and said, I don't need him. How bad is it going to be for those who saw the blood of Jesus spread and spilt for their sins and said, no thanks, I'm good. How bad is it going to be for those who felt God's spirit calling unto them for salvation and said, no thanks. And what we see is that vengeance is his. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Because listen, God is just. Listen to that again. God is just. Yes, he is merciful. Yes, he is loving. That's why he sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins. But he is also just. Meaning that if we reject Jesus, if we reject God's offer of salvation, if we reject his grace and his mercy, he is left with but one choice, and that is to judge us for our sins. You wonder why God sent Jesus Born of the Virgin, as we saw last week, so that he would be pure and undefiled by sin. So that when he went to the cross to die, he would die a perfect sacrifice so that he could pay for our sins. Sin cannot be overlooked. It has to be dealt with. 
And Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin. And listen, we cannot afford to make a mistake here. God is rich in mercy towards those that confess their sins and acknowledge their deep need for his salvation. But at the same time, God is against those who arrogantly ignore his offer of grace and reject his gift of salvation. That's what Mary declares. His arm is against those who are proud. It's against those who are mighty. It's against those who are rich. It's against those who do not acknowledge their need for a savior. So listen, when it comes to the gift of Christ, we cannot afford to be prideful, but instead must humbly acknowledge our need for a Savior. Amen? So therefore, we exalt, we magnify, we make much of Jesus. Why? Because he is our offer of mercy, he is our offer of justice, and then we see thirdly, we are to magnify the Lord because of his faithfulness. Now, Again, Mary sits back and she ponders all these things. She's putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And the reality is she's putting together more pieces than the rest of us. She's she's figuring things out that we've yet to fully figure out. And notice what we see is as Mary sort of declares this and demonstrates what she's understood so far about the faithfulness of God. First of all, notice in verse 47, she acknowledges and knows that God is her Savior. She understands that Jesus has been sent by God to be the Savior of the world. But then notice what we see in verse 54. We see that he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So notice what it says in verse 54. That he's helped his servant Israel by remembering his mercy. Well, what was God's mercy to Israel? Well, God's mercy to Israel was the covenant that God made to Abraham and to his descendants in Genesis chapter 12. Matter of fact, listen to what it says, Genesis 12, 2 and 3. And I, God speaking, will make of you a great nation, speaking to Abraham. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who, excuse me, I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here's what God says to Abraham. God says, first of all, I'm making a covenant with you, Abraham. I'm going to bless you and make your name great. For that reason, we still know who Father Abraham is to this day. Amen? Think about that. Listen, my name will not be remembered much after Noah's lifetime or his children's lifetime. Right? My name will not be made great. 200 years from now, there won't be a soul who remembers who Will Abernathy is. Right? There's not going to be many who remember you in 200 years, if anybody. We know Father Abraham today. Why? Because God is faithful and he keeps his covenant. When God said, I will make your name great to Abraham, he meant it. And he made his name great, even to this day. But he says, not only am I going to make your name great, I am going to bless you and your descendants. And God has been blessing and dealing with and showing grace and mercy and even judgment towards the nation of Israel, all as a part of his faithfulness. And then he remembers his mercy towards Abraham as his descendants here in this text 
by keeping his promise and sending the Messiah. Amen. Because there was only one way Israel was going to enter into an eternal relationship with God the Father, and it wasn't going to be through the law. Mm. Because they nor we could keep the law. Mm. It was only going to come through grace and through mercy by putting their faith and trust in a Savior. And that Savior was the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. But not only does God remain faithful to Abraham and to the covenant he made with him and his descendants, but remember what the last part of that covenant was. That God would make all the families of the earth blessed through Abraham and through his descendants. That's us. Amen? That's us. We're, we're the families or the peoples of the earth. We're the nations that are not Israel, but yet who have a chance to give our lives to Christ, to be saved, to have our sins forgiven, all because Jesus was and is faithful. And the reality is we can trust Jesus. We can trust God because he is faithful to keep his word. God promised he would send the Messiah that would save his people from their sins, and he did. God promised that that Messiah would not only be the salvation of Israel, but it would be the salvation of all who place their faith and trust in Jesus, and it is. Jesus is the gift of God that brings salvation to the world. If we will place our faith and trust in him, then we too can be saved. So remember, the wage of sin is death. But remember that God is just. Therefore, the sin that we committed had to be paid for through death. Which is why God sent Jesus to die on a cross so that our sin could be paid for. And what we are left to do today is we are left to magnify, to make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we can magnify Jesus in really three ways as we kind of wrap this up. The first way that you can magnify the Lord Jesus Christ in your life is to acknowledge Him as your Lord and as your Savior. The first and most important way you can magnify Jesus is by acknowledging Him as your Lord and as your Savior. You see, it's not enough to know of Jesus. It's not enough to celebrate Christmas. It's not enough to come to church. It's not enough to lift up songs of praise. It's not enough to pray before you eat. Right? Those things are good. If you've got a relationship with Christ, those things are edifying. Those things are helpful. But if you've yet to surrender your life to Jesus, then those things are just religious stuff that mean nothing. The way in which you make much of Jesus is you make much of Jesus by saying, Jesus, I do believe that you are God's son. I do believe that you came to this earth, lived the perfect life, died on the cross for my sins. And not only do I believe that, but I believe it so much that I want to make you Lord and Savior of my life. That's how you make much of Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's how you magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember, his mercy is on those who fear him. In other words, his mercy is on those who trust him as their Savior and surrender their lives to him. So let me ask you, first of all, this morning, have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If not, and you feel God speaking to your heart, then I want to invite you this morning to enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You say, what do you mean if God's speaking to my heart? 
Remember what, what it said in Hebrews? That those who reject God, who trample the blood of the covenant underfoot, and who reject the Spirit of God, are going to experience God's vengeance. That Spirit of God, that's what enables you to enter into a personal relationship with Jesus. It's when God calls out to you and calls you unto salvation. Listen, God's not going to email you, text you, or give you a phone call. But what He will do, through the Holy Spirit, He will speak to your hearts and call you unto Himself. Yeah. And if you're experiencing that today, if you're feeling God calling out to you this morning, then that's proof that God exists, it's proof that God loves you, and it's proof that God wants a relationship with you. Amen? Don't ignore it. That's God calling out to you. And so, the first way in which we magnify the Lord Jesus is by surrendering to Him as Lord and Savior. If you feel God doing that in just a few moments as we stand to sing our hymn of invitation, I'm going to invite you to come, and I'd love to share with you more about how you can trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But another way, a second way that we can magnify the Lord Jesus Christ is we can live a life that is pleasing to Him. Listen, if we're surrendered to the Lord, then we will prove that by living a life of obedience to His Word. And when we live a life of obedience to His Word, when we surrender our lives to Him and demonstrate it through obedience, you know what it does? It makes much of Jesus. Because unlike, I mean, like Mary, we're not going to sit there and say, hey, look at me, I'm awesome. We're going to say, look at God, He's awesome. He's the one who does great things. He's the one who works. He's the one who moves. You see the bad in my life? That's all me. You see the good in my life? That's what God's been able to do through me. And in most cases, in spite of me. Yeah. Amen? But we can magnify the Lord by living a life that is pleasing to Him. And then thirdly, we magnify the Lord by telling others about Him. Don't miss this. We magnify the Lord by opening our mouths and telling others about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. Amen? So let me ask you, are you magnifying the Lord in your life? Have you surrendered to Him as Lord and Savior? Are you living a life of obedience before Him? And are you sharing your faith with others? Your prayer today? With your head bowed and your eyes closed, just you and the Lord, I want to again just encourage you and ask you, have you surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life? If you have, then praise Him. Thank Him for your salvation. Magnify Him by giving Him praise this morning. If you haven't, let me encourage you. God loves you. And He desires a relationship with you. So if you feel God speaking to you, then I want to invite you to come. When we all stand to sing, this altar is going to be open. I'm going to be down here in the front, and you'll be able to come and just say, Will, I want to give my life to Christ. You may have questions, and you say, You know what? I need to, I need to talk to you. And so that's fine. After service, come and talk to me and, and just say, Will, I, I, want to, I want to find out more about how I can trust Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior. But if you feel God speaking to you, please, please do not ignore it. Secondly, let me encourage you and ask you again, are you living a life pleasing to Him? Maybe there's a sin that needs to be confessed. Maybe there's an area that needs to be strengthened. Listen, this altar is open. I'll be happy to pray with you. But let me encourage you to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ by living in obedience to God.
So then thirdly, let me encourage you. Share your faith with others. During this time of the year, people are open and they're receptive to the gospel. With all that is going wrong in the world today, it is so easy to help people see that the world is broken and in need of fixing. It is a great avenue to sharing the faith. So let me encourage you to share the faith with others. Lord, we love you. We thank you and we praise you for all that you're doing in our hearts and our lives. Lord, we surrender ourselves in this invitation to you now. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.